Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. Phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show start, kicks off this hour. We'll be speaking to Carl Richel this hour, CEO and founder of System76, machines that are born to run Linux. We're going to be talking to him about Pop! OS 2004 and some of the new features that they have rolled out, the most prevalent of which is auto-tiling. Now, I want to take a moment and just say congratulations to all of the distros out there that have done an absolutely stellar bang-up job of their 2004 releases. I started, I think, two weeks ago, we did our official Ubuntu 2004 proper review. And what I would tell you is that the summation of that episode is 2004 is the king of polish. They've done such a good job of really owning the GNOME desktop and making that distro feel like a first-class Linux product. What I was surprised to learn over the following couple of weeks is that all of the spins have done an equally good job of keeping up and in fact, actually exceeding expectations of their 2004 releases. Now, I've had an opportunity to play with uh, two additional distros. One is Popos, which we're going to talk about primarily in this episode. And then also, I've had my chance this week to get my hands on Kubuntu 2004. And I have to tell you that there are some significant improvements um, to Kubuntu as well. Um, we'll start with uh, with Popos. The biggest thing that they are pushing is the tiling desktop and they created a feature called auto tiling if you haven't had an opportunity to play with a tiling desktop i highly suggest that you do so the reason for that is when you start using a computer for your day-to-day life or when you use it from you know the time that you get into the office until the time that you leave you start to look way for ways that you can increase efficiency And one of the most inefficient things that we do on a computer is we switch between input devices. We switch between a mouse and a keyboard. Now, not that there aren't on-screen keyboards or ways to do these kinds of things, but the speed at which you can type using a mouse alone is not that attractive. And so we default to having our keys on our hands on the keyboard, rather, the majority of the time, and then just taking the hand off the keyboard to go manipulate the mouse. What tiling desktops allow you to do is switch between your active windows using only the keyboard. So, for example, in my case, I primarily operate between three different applications. I operate between the Firefox web browser, the Thunderbird email client, and my terminal. And what I expect from the, the, the operating system is to have the most efficient way to switch between those three running applications at any one time. Tiling allows me to do that, of course. The problem with tiling is sometimes you just want to use the computer like most people use a computer with the mouse drag windows around, so on and so forth. And that is what has kept me off of keeping a tiling desktop manager on my laptop running at full time as I couldn't switch between the two until now because Pop! OS is doing just that. And so we'll have Carl on later in the episode and we will talk to him about this great new feature and some of the other things that have come up in their Pop! OS 2004 release. The login screen for Kubuntu, much improved. The audio panel, totally different. In fact, 
the audio subsystem in Kubuntu 2004 is operating well enough to the point that I may very well swap when these machines in the studio, which are still running 1604 with Unity, when we're, we're looking at upgrading them. And we are obviously coming up to the end of that five-year life cycle next year. And I think what we're going to do is, is upgrade them to Kubuntu. What had stopped me from doing that in the past was Kubuntu's inability to let me set a default audio device and then have all of those applications respected. It seems like every time I turn around, it's making a decision and sending one application, one window, sometimes one single tab to a separate audio device. And it's fundamentally untenable here in a studio where I have to just be able to click on something and trust that it's going to come out in the right way. That has all been changed as far as I can tell in 2004. I have it running on my work laptop and I've not had any issues with it whatsoever, the audio subsystem specifically. Um, I also really appreciate the streamlined Thunderbolt docking interface that is now available in Kubuntu and the ability to configure along with the history of when docks were connected, disconnected, so on and so forth. And finally, the global D&D, &D, um, being able to disable notifications from a global level just by clicking down on the system tray. This is something that anybody who, again, spends a lot of time on a, on, a, on a single desktop, what you find after a certain amount of time is that the constant interruption of emails, telegrams, uh, IRC messages, so on and so forth, interrupts your workflow. And the ability to have one place, one central control place to tell it, don't show me any of these things, means we have once again solidified my previous uh, statement that you will pry KDE away from my cold, dead body. It is that good. Again, the phone lines are open tonight at 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-NOAH, 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. I have made a habit of making a recommendation that when the newest version of an operating system comes out, and this is true of Fedora, this is true of Ubuntu, this is true of any rolling distribution, I always suggest staying behind a little bit behind the bleeding edge people. Let somebody else install the distribution. Let somebody else deal with some of the pain points. And then once those pain points are identified and corrected, then you go ahead and upgrade. An example of what I'm talking about would be the encryption password leak in the 2004 release. If you, right on the day of install, decided to wipe your laptop and install, your encryption key is potentially compromised because it was written in plain text to a particular location. Now, 14 hours later, that was corrected. But again, you would have had to have a lag time. Now, I typically give it about 30 days and then I upgrade my machines. One of, one of the, again, one of the reasons, another example, is there's a fantastic piece of software that I use um, or have been using for some time. It's called Xiphos, and it's primarily designed for Bible research and study. But that's, if you don't have a, a walk with God, if you don't have a, a, a particular faith, it's okay. There are a large collection of historical documents as well to include Roman historians that wrote firsthand accounts of their time during war and some uprising. Absolutely fascinating stuff to read and very difficult to, I shouldn't say very difficult to obtain, you can obtain it other ways. But the ability for it to be presented in a modern interface and the ability to customize the style and text uh, and that interface um, really makes it more approachable. And the features of customizability of Xiphos I found are particularly just, it's a really fantastic piece of software. So one of the things, and I really wish more applications would get around this idea of sessions. Um, when you sit down to 
open Firefox, oftentimes you're doing a particular task. Sometimes that's research from, in my case, sometimes that's show prep, sometimes that's work. It would be nice if there was a way for me to save a Firefox session. So all of the tabs I had open, all of the order and, and, and all that can be saved and recalled at a later time. Zyphos allows me to do that with my study session. So I have the ability to save my study session. I also have the ability to send that to another Zyphos user. And so if I'm studying a particular historical text or a particular biblical text, I can open it up, bookmark the parts I want, or open in various tabs the various different parts I'm comparing, save that entire session, then recall it later if I'm having a discussion. I find that to be a really useful functionality. Also, the ability to back up and restore all of your bookmarks. I've also found a way to symlink the location that it stores bookmarks to and map that over to an NFS server so I can have multiple copies of Zyphos all referencing the same bookmarks file, thus allowing me to uh, study from anywhere and add uh, and bookmark from anywhere. Uh, finally, the UI. So right off the bat when you fire it up, frankly, I'm not a fan of the UI. Yeah, I think it's a little ugly. It kind of feels like opening the windows in your nice, dark, comfortable room and all of a sudden the sun sunlight just comes blaring in because it's this white background with black text. But the customizability is pretty fantastic. You have the ability to change the, the you know, not only the text color, but the background color, the highlighted, um, the highlighted text color of, uh, of the, of the exact place in the text that you are. Um, it, I found it trivial to replicate the breeze dark theme, which is what I chose to do. Anyway, if you're interested, you can learn more, uh, uh about Zyphos. As I say, though, it behooves you not to upgrade the second a new distribution comes out because Zyphos is not available on 2004. Now, their last release was on May 4th, and so I suspect it may be a little bit before they get around to releasing another update, at which time I hope it'll be available on 2004. So if you're on the latest LTS, you won't be able to take advantage of the software. If you're not, I highly suggest you check it out. Uh, again, this software is called Zyphos. Thunderbolt docs are absolutely incredible, and I've used the heck out of them to provide myself with one cohesive computing experience no matter where I am physically. I bounce between a number of different locations. I bounce between the radio station, my home, my office, and of course, client locations. Now, earlier this year, we set, and so obviously I've been setting up Thunderbolt docs at all of these places so I can take my one single laptop and go between all of these places. We recently set up a Pelican 1510 case that contains a 19-inch monitor, a keyboard, a trackball, um, a Thunderbolt dock, and we store all of that in a small little 1510 case. We take it over to client sites, and that allows us to set up extended shops so we can occupy an unused desk. Um, I even have a little fold-up table that I can take if there isn't an unused desk because there's nothing worse than when you're doing a three- or four-day install and your, uh, your, uh, your command center, if you will, is some pile of boxes that you found in the IT room that you've curled up on and, uh, and, you're, and you're working off of your laptop. And I've done that enough times to know I don't ever want to do it again. Um, and the ability to just take a, a, a really nice display, a really nice keyboard, a really nice monitor um, and set that up. And so I have my computer right at the client site, oftentimes wired right into their network, or sometimes we have a switch with VLANs and so I can jump around on different networks. That saves so much time in the long run, and it's possible only because of the way that Thunderbolt works. Um, Thunderbolt works, because, and it is so powerful precisely because Thunderbolt 
gives PCI access to the system. Now that does a number of things. First of all, it means that you're not taking a performance compromise and you're not taking a USB bandwidth limitation compromise anytime you connect to the dock. I've said before and I'll say again, if you're looking for the smoothest experience, the easiest, most uh, bottom line, lowest common denominator experience, I still think you can't do better than the Dell WD-15 USB-C dock. Now that is not Thunderbolt. However, it will work with things like Chromebooks, inexpensive laptops. Um, we're going to talk later on to Carl about uh, his System76 laptops. It's going to work very fantastic with those. Um, Thunderbolt, you should be prepared for a couple of headaches because it isn't a perfectly smooth experience, albeit it's gotten a lot better in 2004. Um, where the rubber really hit the road for me was when Leighton Broadcasting, my part-time employer, gave me my work laptop. I specifically said, if you're going to give me a laptop, I want these things. And it wasn't, you know, a lot, but one of the things that I put on that list was I had to have a Thunderbolt port. And they were, they kindly obliged and gave me uh, a laptop with a Thunderbolt port. And so I have the ability now to use my same 34-inch Dell ultrawide display, which I love, by the way. Uh, when I'm in work mode, I plug in my work laptop and I do all of my work things. And I have my work distribution installed on on that laptop. And then at six o'clock when I get off, I swap that work laptop out for my personal ThinkPad and plug it into the exact same dock. And lo and behold, my same trackball, my same monitor, my same speaker system, my same keyboard, my printer, all of these things come right back to me um, with a totally different install, totally different encryption password, totally different software, so on and so forth. It has, it is, it is, it would not be an exaggeration to say that it has fundamentally changed the way that I do my job. Well, there's a new exploit out. Um, and as you might imagine, anytime you give that kind of unprecedented access directly to the system uh, PCI bus, it has the ability to be used negligently or maliciously. Now, it, they, the attack is a type of an evil made attack. And if you're not familiar with what an evil made attack is, it is an attack in which the attacker must have exclusive access, uninterrupted access for a short time uh, with the computer. It gets its name because the most often time that somebody were to leave their laptop unattended, and it could potentially be um, occupied and or modified by somebody else's in a hotel room where you've stepped out to go get something to eat, you've stepped down to use the pool, um, You've just walked down to go use the vending machine and a maid who obviously has access to every hotel room in the hotel and also their presence inside of a hotel room wouldn't be entirely unexplainable, would have the ability to get access to your laptop. And so from an attacker standpoint, if you swap out a maid with a somebody who has training in performing an evil maid attack and you get that person employed or put that person in place in a position in which your target is known to have a hotel room at that hotel, you have the opportunity to send that person in and uh, and um, execute an exploit on that person's computer. And if they're ever caught, uh, they just walk back out and say, we were cleaning, checking, maintenance, whatever it is. Um, and so that that's where the name comes from. This specific attack um, is known as Thunder Spy. And it was discovered by the University of Technology researcher Bjorn Rotenberg, and he revealed the details of this new attack um, on Thunderbolt-enabled Windows or Linux PCs manufactured before 2018. Now, his technique can bypass the lock screen or sleep uh, or sleeping of a locked computer, and even its hard disk encryption to gain full access to the computer's data. Now, you might remember, and I've said this numerous times, anytime your computer is in the running state, 
your encryption system is drastically compromised because those encryption keys are in fact loaded into memory. And so even before this attack came out, the truth is you're still running somewhat of a risk because if I have access to a computer, even if it doesn't have a Thunderbolt port, I still have the opportunity to do a cold boot attack and try and dump the memory. Um, if the, again, if the computer's running, it has power. So if your, if your computer is not going to be in use and it's not going to be in your possession, you should always, of course, shut it down completely. Now, that's not going to defend against all forms of attack, particularly if they have physical access to it. But to gain access to the computer's data, all you need is a screwdriver and it leaves no trace of intrusion. And you can pull this attack off in just a couple of minutes. Now, this opens a new avenue for what secu the security industry is, again, referring to as an evil maid attack. All the evil maid has to do is unscrew the backplate of the computer. They attach a device and reprogram the firmware. And they reattach the backplate and the evil maid is able to obtain full access to the laptop. Uh, Rotenberg plans to present his Thunder Spy research at the Black Hat Security Conference this summer or the virtual conference that may replace it. But all of this, he says, can be done in under five minutes. And the device that they're attaching... Um, I guess I don't have, I thought I had it in my notes here. Yeah, here we go. Uh, so the um, Intel tried to defend against this by introducing something called DMA protection, also known as kernel direct memory access protection, um, which does in fact prevent this Thunder Spy attack. The problem is um, it's not, it doesn't exist in computers made before 2019. And it's not even standard today. In fact, a lot of Thunderbolt peripherals made before 2019 are incompatible with kernel DMA. And so in their testing, they were a, they, they found that no Dell machine uh, that has a kernel DMA protection, including those from 2019 on, and they were only ver able to verify a few HP and Lenovo models from 2019 or later that use it. And so Ruttenberg's technique requires, uh, again, attaching, all right, here it is, attaching a device called an SPI programmer um, with an SOP8 clip. And that's a piece of hardware that's designed to attach to the controller's pins. And that SPI programmer then rewrites the firmware of the chip, which Rettenberg's video demo takes a little over two minutes, essentially turning off the security settings. And so if you're not familiar with, with, uh, with the plain English translation of what he's doing here, Thunderbolt allows you to choose different security levels and then within those security levels allows you to trust different devices. So what this SPI programmer is doing is changing the security level of your Thunderbolt interface to zero so that it is wide open. And the only way that you can prevent this entirely is to disable Thunderbolt, essentially turning your Thunderbolt connection into a display port and USB-C port. Now that's one answer, I guess, but as I previously mentioned, Thunderbolt can be, if used correctly and not negligently or maliciously, a real benefit to those of us who have mobile workflows. And so to a certain extent, I would be very disappointed if our only answer was to get rid of Thunderbolt altogether. It's also highly concerning to me that there doesn't seem to be an easy way to backport a fix. It seems like this is something that is going to have to be built into the chip itself, which means that it's probably not going to simply come down the pipe as a software update. Perhaps maybe we would get it as a BIOS firmware update for the laptop. But again, that starts to lead into the discussion of how many people are doing those updates. And in the case of certain manufacturers, where are those updates coming from and how are they provided to the customer? And so if you have a computer that has Thunderbolt, you need to be aware of this because if you work in healthcare, if you work in law enforcement, if you have any sort of job that has 
security requirements, you want to be aware of these attacks and do the best that you can to defend against them. And so very interesting article, very interesting research, and we'll continue to follow um, the development. This story comes to us from Wired. And of course, we'll have it linked in the show notes, which you can get at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Before we go any further, I do want to welcome uh, Carl Richel, the president and CEO, uh, founder and CEO of System76. Carl joins us here on the Ask Noah Show to talk about their latest release, Pop OS 2004. So, Carl, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. I really appreciate it. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate you taking the time to be here. So, let's start with this. Obviously, the big news is the release of 2004, the next LTS. And for those who aren't aware, when Canonical made the decision to switch from the Unity interface over to the GNOME desktop environment, you at System76 said, this presents a problem for our customers because they have become accustomed to a particular experience and now that is changing. Um, and, and, and you guys didn't have a whole lot of heads up. But instead of getting upset or complaining about it, you guys really put your head down, got to work, and built what many are calling a massive improvement to the original GNOME desktop, and that is now Pop! OS. Uh, I believe this is the first LTS that you guys have released? Actually, it's our second. Our first release was 1710, so 2017. Uh, the next release, 1804, was an LTS, so this would be our second one. Okay, fantastic. So the second LTS. How are you guys feeling about the, about, about the second release? Well, I think I should maybe take a step back and... And although LTS does have um, quite a few, quite a bit of meaning, and um, and we offer LTS as as an option uh, continuously until the next LTS comes out, just as Canonical does. But uh, but to us, every release that we have, and we have one every six months, is a production release that is that that we suggest people upgrade to, that we support, and that we um, continually improve along the path between those LTSs. So I'm not sure LTS is. I, I think. Uh, a good concept, particularly on servers. I'm less uh, less sure on desktop, where I think there are better options to continuously improve the operating system. Operating system, provide uh, reliable upgrades, and um, and not be on the same stack for two years. And so things like Flatpak and and even and Snaps and um, uh, you know and other things are, are making it more possible to um, continuously keep the the operating system moving without. Um, uh, uh, you know, without the the risk of of things breaking, without we've actually had what I guess it's 2017. We've had six or seven releases by this time now. Maybe six releases. So let's dive into that a little bit. Was there any discussion back at the time that you have done this, or is there continuing discussion of perhaps looking at rebasing Pop OS on something rolling? Uh, I don't think. Um, well, I think Ubuntu is probably. You know, they, it's an incredible group of people with an incredible base operating system that that uh, that works very well for a, a broad swath of computer users. And what System76, what we're doing is is kind of narrowing our focus to our customers in a particular base um, uh, that is uh, that is more narrow than Ubuntu's overall uh, overall view. So I think that's the the fundamental difference. But Ubuntu remains a uh, and to my mind I, I, I love Ubuntu it's been a part of my life for 15 years uh, uh, it, it remains an incredible distribution with an extremely solid base and and uh, we, we just kind of sharpen the tip for our particular customer base what is your particular customer base what who are the users you are trying to target we 
our, our customers are people that are uh, that kind of think of and use their computer as a tool to build, create, and develop to create things. So the, you know, today, it's uh, you know a lot of our customers work in bioinformatics. These are the folks that are working on um, on, on identifying, understanding coronavirus, looking for cures. Uh, these are people that are. Uh, doing genome sequencing, um, uh, folks in engineering departments in in uh, a lot of different in large organizations. Any, I think we're in 99 of of uh, the United States 100 top research uh, universities. So, um, so we we spend our time thinking about the problems that that creators have and trying to make the operating system a better experience for them. I would imagine that if putting myself in the position of of somebody who owns a hardware company if all i if all i achieved when i decided to ma start maintaining my own distribution was that the customers that purchased my hardware thought that was the best experience that they had ever had on a computer equivalent to that of mac os or windows and they really i would feel like we really fulfilled our um our commitment to the customer so to have people go above and beyond that and have the community respond by saying i don't maybe i don't even have a system 76 computer but pop os is that good that we are now installing it and it's become the daily driver of people uh, apart from the hardware that must feel pretty good to you and your team uh, it's certainly special to us and you know, to be able to have an impact on people's lives is always you know a special a special thing and um, and to see to see pop os's um, adoption beyond our 76 customer base is, is certainly um uh, is certainly exciting, and we, and even though you know our first target is 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 creators and, and our and our customers, um, we take a responsibility to the broader community, people that just use Pop on their computer every day, very you know, very seriously as well. So uh, to us, their their customers, um, uh, their customers just as our hardware customers are, and their feedback and their the community involvement makes Pop OS better as well because uh, you know people that are using our. Our, our operating system, more people that are using it can report more bugs, more issues, and find more corner cases that aren't working um, that we're able to then um, uh, to fix and move forward, uh, move forward for our entire customer base. Let's get into the meat and potatoes of it. The 2004 release has just come out. Carl, what are some of the exciting changes that, that, are, that are with us that uh, maybe weren't there in 1804? Well, the biggest one by far is auto-tiling. It's... Uh, so I uh, get a bit of a history lesson on uh, on auto tiling from for us it's about a year ago. Um, well, it's been longer than that. Uh, our, a lot of our developers are using i3 and Sway, and uh, then I started using it about a year ago as well. And and I think they're really onto something with um, auto tiling. I'm not even sure auto tiling was a, was a term actually before <laughs> before we started using it for describing what this what this is. But uh, essentially, auto tiling will. Uh, automatically place all of your windows um, in a grid on your screen so you can see everything at once. What that what that does is is really enhance the, your ability to navigate your desktop with your keyboard and to have the information that you want in front of you uh, easily accessible and, and easy to move back and forth between. So, so um, as we were, we thought that they really identified the folks in this this uh, in the i3 and Sway community identified um, a better way of computing for a lot of people, particularly. Um, our, our customer base. And we started hearing the same feedback from our customers as well. A lot of them were using i3 and Sway. So we wanted to take those ideas and make them more accessible to a much bigger group of customers and build it into the GNOME desktop in a way that it's optional, that you can kind of dip your toes in, uh, get a feel for it, 
And, um, and then if it's not for you, you can pull back as well and use floating windows just as you would have before. So, um, so auto tiling is by far, uh, you know, it's been a major lift and, um, and from the response we've seen so far, I think we're, we're improving people's workflow and, and, uh, and people are really seeing the, the value in that work. Uh, beyond that, um, the other thing, a big feature is um, Flatpak and Flathub. So Flatpak, of course, is a new containerized application um, model that enables the applications to, to float essentially on top of the, the operating, operating system stack. So regardless of what distribution you're using or which version of distribution you're using, Flatpaks will work on all of them. And uh, while Flatpak is the packaging technology, Flathub has become the kind of go-to place for storing applications that are, are developed with or, or uh, packaged with Flatpak. So now in Pop! OS, you have a lot more applications that you didn't have before, plus these rolling applications on top of the desktop that are more current than they were when the, in the old repository model. Uh, there's a lot of other things I'm sure I'm forgetting. There's uh, hybrid graphics improvements. Um, uh, we, uh, we, there's a lot of improvements to PopShop as well and, uh, and the curated apps. So, so um, yeah, those are, the, those are the big things. Let's dig into the auto tiling a little bit. So one of the things that I have noticed is when I have used tiling window managers, I have, as you have alluded to, found them to be much more efficient. You know, the vast majority of us, particularly if you're in the development world or I work in the system administration world, but the reality is I'm bouncing between three windows. I'm bouncing between my terminal, my email client, and my web browser. And so to have all of those windows lined up and where I can expect them and the size is correct so that you know, the text and stuff renders the way I would expect it to. Those kinds of things drastically improve my productivity. But, and again, I think you kind of alluded to this. There are oftentimes when I step out of work mode, now I just want to open up VLC or I want to drag windows around so I can show my, my kids cute pictures or whatever it is. Now I need to be out of the tiling window manager. And it sounds like, if I'm understanding you right, with this auto tiling feature, you can switch between those two workflows pretty seamlessly. Yeah, it's one switch in the in the top bar uh, to tile windows. And if your windows aren't tiled and you click that switch, they automatically tile in front of you. It's kind of a fun thing just to just to see. And you're you're uh, I think you're absolutely right. The you're we're often working in lots of different windows, and having them stack on top of each other, it's just it's it's inefficient and, and difficult, frankly. And we also have found that most of our customers some 70% or so, use multiple monitors. So multiple, multiple monitors or an ultra-wide. And if you have an ultra-wide, you know the pain of floating windows. When, when you launch something and then you, you try, your whole point of having that monitor is to have your command center and everything in front of you. Right. And yet you, you have to you know, open an application, resize it, kind of move it over to the side, and do that with every window. And with auto-tiling, you just launch things and it all lays out for you. That's fantastic. And I can, I, again, anybody who has, anybody who has used tiling window managers or has used, I have a Dell ultra wide display. I know exactly what you're talking about. I open up a web browser and all of a sudden I have, you know, 40 some inches worth of dead space. And then in the very center of my, my monitor, I have the actual web page and I, I, you look at it and go, well, that's a really big waste of, 
of, of the rest of this monitor. That's obviously not how I wanted that to open up. And so I, I think it's very cool that this can be switched on or off. I think that's going to solve a lot of problems. Frankly, I think it's also going to drive a lot of adoption to tiling window managers or the idea of tiling windows where otherwise people wouldn't use them because, frankly, people like having the option of just dragging a window and dragging it around. It kind of feels like you're going back in time if you're just stuck that way. Tell me some oh, of the... Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I was going to add that it's, it's incredibly addictive. Once you get used to, to using your computer this way, and it does take some time, and it won't be for everybody, but that, you know, that's all right. It takes some, some time to adjust to um, how things are different. But once you do, it's very painful to go back. What are some of the other things that are different between and distinguish Pop! OS from Ubuntu proper? Well, I think um, you know a lot of our work is uh, the things that we've identified and talked about uh, already. Um, when we when we you know discuss the operating system and experience with our customers, we we kind of take that take those discussions and that experience, and then start building things on top of Papa West to uh, to help um, uh, to alleviate or improve their experience. Uh, one of the first things that we did was build a new installer reason we did that was by and large because our customers require, a lot of them require full disk encryption out of the box. And that wasn't something that was possible to do with uh, Ubuntu and, and Ubiquiti. And I'm not, I'm not sure today, actually I don't think it is a today either. But uh, with our installer, we, we built a, a method to essentially first make it really fast so that once the customer receives a computer, if they choose full disk encryption, um, the operating system within 10 or 20 seconds, maybe 30, is reinstalled with an encryption key that is created on the customer's device when they received it. So um, that, and that's the major kind of fundamental flaw in a lot of um, methods of providing Linux as an OEM to customers the full encryption is the way to do it previously means that the OEM has this, the signing key for that encryption um, in some way, in your imaging systems or somewhere. And so the customer either has to, like, Recreate that key and re-encrypt their their um, uh, their drives, which is um, I don't know, too much to ask. And even if and it's a risk anyway, because then you know if a customer doesn't do that, you're uh, you know because it's because it's a painful experience. Then you have all of these installs of full disk encryption and a single source of signing. So with the new installer, every single computer that ships has full disk encryption with a with a, a key that's created on the device. Um, we also pull back a little bit. We're a little bit more of a vanilla gnome, although um, that's changing a little bit with auto tiling and other things. But still, um, uh, we make fewer changes to gnome. Uh, we also do a lot of work on hybrid graphics because um, our hardware is uh, uh, because our hardware has integrated Intel graphics as well as NVIDIA. So um, so we work to to make uh, switching between Intel and NVIDIA and hybrid graphics and launching applications, specific applications on the dedicated GPU, um, a really smooth and an excellent process for our customers. Um, clearly because as an OEM, uh, that's a feature that is desirable to our customers and makes our products better. And so we built it into the operating system. That's fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about your hardware. Obviously the hardware lineup um, is constantly evolving, constantly changing. And you guys have a a, a real commitment to try to continually move towards a more open platform. And, and some of your competitors, Carl, have, have attempted to do this. And, and I, th I think they just haven't been able to earn the community's trust the way that you have. Um, I understand that your Galago, Lemur, Lemur and Darter are all uh, running Core Boot now. 
And um, and so th- th- this open sources even more of the hardware. Talk to me about your, your hardware lineup and, and what changes have occurred in the past few years. Oh, yeah, that's a there's a lot in that subject. So I, I suppose, um, yeah, we can start with with uh, what you mentioned there. So the Galago, the Darter, and our and our new Lemur Pro all have a, a core boot open source firmware. The Lemur Pro goes a step further, and a step that's really exciting to me. It's uh, it's also an open source embedded controller. So on your uh, on your computer, the the firmware is essentially the or the the BIOS of that part is essentially responsible for bringing up devices. Whereas the EC has much more responsibility over the rest of the computer. It manages the power planes on the motherboard. It manages suspend your ACPI implementation, your hotkeys, um, uh, your keyboard. Every single key press goes through the embedded controller. So, uh, so the embedded controller, I think, is as, as exciting as Core Boot is. The Open EC is even more exciting uh, to my mind. It's one of the last last walls that hasn't been broken down, and it's now now been broken down with the Libra Pro. And uh, we're also working on bringing some of that functionality back to the Galico Pro and the Darter Pro. Uh, and it's been it's been a pretty big effort. There's uh, uh, things like Thunderbolt and other technologies require partnerships with Intel and, and others to enable uh, embedded or the embedded controller, open firmware, and and core boot and others. And so um, we're fortunate to have a strong relationship with the firmware team at Intel. It's uh, also helped us with. Uh, documentation getting us the things that we need to actually make this possible for the broader community. And now there's Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt support in, uh, in Core Boot, uh, thanks to a lot, of, a lot of this effort. With the Lemur Pro, even though it is world-class thin, you also managed to pack 14 hours of battery life into that thing and up to 40 gigabytes of DDR4 and a four terabyte, up to four terabytes of NVMe storage space. This machine is really built as a powerhouse for, I assume, developers. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty incredible. You could imagine it being useful for, I mean, even well beyond the developer um, community. So, um, so battery life has has always been a, uh, a you know, an, an area where the Linux community hasn't necessarily been well served and. And most of that is actually just because the hardware doesn't have big enough batteries. And so with the Lemur, when you combine a U-class processor and a 73 watt hour battery, and, and lo and behold, you're going to get you know, 14 hours of life plus. Um, there's, uh, uh, you know, the, I think the other incredible thing about the, the Lemur is, is also just its its ability to pack that much in in less than two pounds. So it's, like, it's 1.9 pounds. And when you hold it, it, it feels like holding a, a pad of paper, maybe. So it's ultra portable in, in ways that are beyond just, you know, just that battery. It just feels like, a, it feels like a pad of paper that you're slipping into your backpack. The laptop line is fantastic and, um, and, and I've had a chance to put my hands on, on, uh, on, on a couple of your laptops over the years and, and very much enjoyed my experience. In fact, it was kind of interesting. I had a client that, uh, ha- that had the original Galago Pro and 
when he upgraded, upgraded to a Dell XPS. The Dell XPS actually fell apart in, I think, eight or nine months. Uh, and, and he had to send it back into Dell and he got it replaced. And now I think it's actually back there again now. And when I was having a conversation with him recently, he said, yeah, never, ever buying another computer other than from System76. Next time around, I'm just going to stick with uh, with their product lineup because of the it's not just the quality of product, but it's also the quality of support that comes with it. You know, when you reach out to one of these big name manufacturers, Linux to them is just kind of a second nature thing. It's something that they'll they'll kick around if they have time. This is your bread and butter. This is what you guys do. And if you're excited about the laptop lineup, then the Thaleo desktop is, as your website puts it, out of this world. And it is a custom-built desktop computer. My understanding is it's made right here in the U.S. Right. We, um, we decided a few years ago that we wanted to start bringing more design and manufacturing in-house. And and that was largely because we wanted to be able to quickly respond to our customers' needs um, uh, by being very close to the product as, as, and how it's manufactured. So, so we uh, we built a factory in Denver, Colorado. Uh, we designed our own desktops as well as thermal systems and um, and I/O boards. So, there's an, uh, there's something called Thaleo I/O inside of every Thaleo desktop, and it's basically a controller that manages um, uh, the thermal system inside of the computer. So while you know you could take all of these different components and put them together into any box, um, uh, the the amount of optimization and the performance, the how much you're actually going to get out of it, is quite different than something that's engineered from the ground up uh, to be uh, performant and be able to handle the full thermal load of whatever components you put in there. So um, so yeah, beyond just being you know a you know a pretty box, uh, there's massive amount of engineering that goes into making them uh, the most performant that those components inside of the box can be. And all of it is open source as well. So uh, as as much as we believe in, in, in the, the reasons for open source and the value in open source as a software community, those same um, those same traits and those same values extend to our hardware. So uh, they, the entire Thaleo line is open source hardware. You can see the schematics and the designs. You can uh, you could go to a metal shop and have them cut to make your own if you wanted. Um, you can adapt and adjust them. It's GPL licensed, just like our software. This is 24 is kind of a special time for us because now people are starting to see um, like our longer-term vision for human-computer interaction. And although um, you know it does lean towards an, uh, an advanced user, I think we've been able to bridge that gap, of making it you know both easy to use and and um, powerful. Our next step that you guys are going to start seeing is how the hardware comes together with that human-computer interaction. So we're developing a new open-source keyboard. That's going to be the first step in that. And then the ideas from that keyboard and how that keyboard is built to work with POP is going to start extending into further into the product line over over time. So uh, we have a lot of, of exciting things on the on the horizon. Carl Richel, he is the founder and CEO of System76, a company who makes computers born to run Linux. When you buy a computer, don't talk to one. Ask for the lifetime support from 100% real human beings. You get that only with System76. You can learn more about their lineup and the evolution of Pop! OS at System76.com. Carl, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate your time and you coming on and explaining these exciting things. We'll get you back on the program real soon. All right, thanks. Great being here. Yeah, you bet. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Jeremy calls from Portland. Hey, Jeremy, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, thanks. <laughs> yeah, so long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, 
I'm looking for a replacement for like iPod Touch um, and uh, iTunes on the Linux side. So I like to have a little media player that <clears throat> isn't my phone that I can take around or exercise or go for walks with. So I was looking for any recommendations if it was Sony or some off-brand and then some pairing with a open source software to sync podcasts and music and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So there's you got a you got a number of different routes you can go. Um, first and foremost, uh, a real popular way to go with that is just repurposing an Android phone um, that you can load MP3 software, load whatever player you want on there. One of the p- players that I uh, I'm, I'm a real fan of is a um, is a piece of software called uh, Retropod. And if you remember the old i uh, the old iPod Touch, it replicates that interface and turns any Android phone into has a click wheel and the whole nine yards. Um, so that's that's one way to go because most people have an extra phone laying around. Now, if you're looking for a a second outboard device and maybe you say to yourself, self, I really don't want it connected to the internet and I don't really want to worry about updates or any of that, um, Sony is a good way to go. Sony probably has the highest quality. Uh, well, Sony or Onkyo have the highest quality outboard MP3 players that money can buy today. The problem is because they're focused on high quality audio, high quality uh, headphone amplifiers, they support a variety of formats, so on and so forth, they tend to run a little expensive. Um, The model that I have played with, I don't own one personally, but the model that I have played with actually has a a USB-C connector on it and um, and will, of course, allow you to then charge and and use the, the... the mp3 player as if it as if it were similar to your phone um, now a device that i do own and also has a type c connector charger on it and works very very well it's also very inexpensive is a player called i don't know how to pronounce it but f-i-w-w-a-t watt and i'll have a link for you in the show notes but it is a it is a 16 gigabyte hi-fi lossless audio player um that comes it kind of looks like the sansa uh, clip um, the thing I like about it more than the Sense Clip One is it has a Type C charger. But the other thing I really like about it is the fact that it has a micro SD card slot that you can put a micro SD card up to 256 gigabytes and then expand um, the memory. And so what I've done with that is I have you know when we do DJ gigs, we're going out to play. I have a, an SD card that has some backup music in case the system goes down. Then I have something to play for a little bit while we get it back up. If I'm doing a radio show, I have my bumper music and stuff loaded onto it. If I'm just running around, I've got my workout music and so on and so forth. Um, the downside to this device is uh, I, it doesn't support Bluetooth. And I've run into that being an issue because more and more speakers, more and more headphones, more and more audio systems use Bluetooth to connect. This has just the standard 3.5-inch um audio connector and so if you want bluetooth you would have to go to something like the sony walkman um or again repurposing an old android player um but if you're if you're looking for if you're looking for just a way to play music those are my three options one other thing i'll throw out there you asked about the software side um i am a massive fan of qmmp for playing audio on my laptop if i'm going to play music on my computer i use qmmp to do so um, and i find it to be essentially the winamp for linux and i, I just really like it when it comes to transferring music to a, a, an MP3 player, there's a couple ways you can go. Um, the easiest thing, if you want software to do this, is use a software called GMTP. And GMTP connects to the audio player um, over the MTP protocol and allows you to transfer files back and forth, so on and so forth. 
Um, if you want to get into syncing, you can use Rhythmbox, which also has an MTP plugin, and then it will sync your library. Over the years, what I found is that, you know, I probably have, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand uh, tracks. I don't really need to carry all of that with me all the time. I find myself only listening to maybe a few thousand songs in rotation. And so I've, I've kind of gotten to the habit away from syncing my entire music library down to my device and picking a few thousand songs that I'm going to use. And then in the case of the, uh, the Fiwat, I just have different SD cards that I take with me depending on what I want to listen to. And I found that to be a fairly, uh, fairly easygoing way to, to manage music. And then it has the added benefit of a lot of cars now have a little USB port that you're able to plug in. So I carry a little uh, adapter, micro SD card adapter that I put my micro SD card with the various music on uh, into that adapter. And I'm able to plug it into a, a car and then listen to it off of the car directly. Um, so I found that to be a very manageable solution. I don't know if that would work for you, but that's what I'm doing. Yeah, so one question about, like, podcasts. What about, like, something to automatically um, download podcasts, um, sync it to location, whether it's, like, a mount or it's just, you know, some other way to get on the audio device? Mm-hmm. So there's um there's a there's a couple different ways you can go with that. The first thing you can do is obviously if you're using either the Sony or a repurposed Android device, you're able to just download an app to do that. And so you can download Pocket Casts and it will just uh, it will just download the latest episode. If you're not using that, um there's there's a there's a couple different ways you can go. You can use GPotter to download them to the the Linux desktop and then um what I do is I just have a folder, a queue folder that is that is what I use to when I when I connect my mp3 player up to my computer i sync all of those and that q folder contains all of the music that i want to add to it as well as any of my recent podcasts that i haven't listened to um these days if i'm being perfectly honest with you i don't i typically don't listen to podcasts that way because i find it too cumbersome to um to get content particularly because i find myself on the road a lot and so for me it's not a function of i want to just catch up on these seven episodes or whatever it's i'm going to dig into a podcast and go listen to a month of back catalog because i'm going to be on the road for 15 hours and and doing that again i that's where i go back to a second android device that has bluetooth built in i have retropod on there to play music and then i use pocket cast to download the um the the uh, my my podcast but if if i was going to manage that locally if i was going to manage those local files that's what i would do i would use um I would continue because that's the way I used to do it. I, I would continue to use GPotter to download the podcast and then sync them over manually. One other thought, uh, um, just as I'm, I'm thinking about it, one of the things that was nice about doing it that way was I still have all of the podcasts that I that I downloaded and put on at the time my iPod Classic, and um, I have I don't have them uh, those I have copies of and they're on my NAS. Anything after that, anything that just got downloaded to the device, I listen to and then it's gone, so I, I don't have any ability to go back and reference it. So there, there are some serious advantages in, um, in in doing it local. It's just it's going to require a little bit more work. Got it. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. At the end of the, the show, we try and get to some of your feedback. You can, uh, you can send those that feedback to live at asknoahshow.com, and we'll try and get to it on a future episode when we have time. Uh, today, Brock writes in and says, Hi, Noah. We've never met, but I'm friends with Michael Tunnell. We're in the same lug. A few episodes back, you mentioned the idea in passing. I put all of my important home directory config files and directories in Nextcloud. This includes Bash History, Bash RC, Profile, Bin, VimRC, etc. I have three machines, my home desktop, work desktop, and laptop. When setting up my OS for the first time, I delete the original config files, add .back to it, and then I make symbolic links 
from the config files in Nextcloud to my home directory, for example. And then he gives the command to do so. Uh, of course, you know how to do a symlink. Every now and then I have a conflicted copy for bash history if I run commands before Nextcloud syncs. Otherwise, it's great to have. Thanks for all the work and contributing to open source and Linux, Brock. Uh, so a couple thoughts there. One, that is a fantastic way to do it. Um, the other thing is I would consider using C file uh, for actually doing this thing. C file has a very good conflict management system in which it will create copies of those files and just name them conflict files. So you know that there is a difference between one or the other, and that will prevent you, for example, um, for making one change on your desktop, one change on your laptop, and then losing the difference between the two. That'll pres preserve that. The other thing you can do, and we do this at business you know, fairly frequently, um, we will store the home profiles or the home folders on an NFS share. And the, the, the advantage of doing that is no matter what computer the user logs into, um, all of their stuff just shows up as if they were sitting at the same computer. And so that's another way to accomplish the same task. But good on you for, for being creative there and, uh, and syncing those around. Anton writes in and says, in episode 179 of Ask Noah, you, there was a question about Bluetooth headphones. Your answer referenced the poor experience of trying to use Bluetooth headphones to watch YouTube video due to AV sync issues. My solution to that issue was to use an external Bluetooth transmitter with aptX and Bluetooth headphones with aptX. I purchased this transmitter, he gives a link, which plugs into the 3.5 millimeter headphone jack on my computer and the monoprice Bluetooth headphones that you recommended a long time ago. Both of them have aptX and are fairly inexpensive. You can actually have two different sets of headphones connected to the transmitter at the same time. My wife and I frequently use this to watch movies on my Linux computer via Plex, and the kids aren't bothered by the gunfire and explosions. There is no noticeable audio lag when using this solution. Basically, the key for not having audio lag is to have both transmitter and a receiver that support aptX. Although it's a proprietary solution, it seems to be widespread support and many Bluetooth devices all in a price range. Thanks so much. Anton. So I, I, I was familiar with aptX. I'd not dug into it to the extent that you have, but I'll tell you something that I find particularly interesting about this email and something I'm very thankful that you wrote in and brought this to my attention was this Bluetooth transmitter. The idea here is that, of course, you can pair your Bluetooth device to a regular 3.5 millimeter headphone jack. Now, in light of the most recent question, we just got off the phone with a caller that was asking about an outboard mp3 player and i told him one of the concerns about some of these outboard mp3 players is that they don't have the ability to tie into bluetooth this adapter is going to allow anybody with a 3.5 millimeter headphone jack to connect that device up to a bluetooth system and i think that's uh that's going to be critical moving forward because that's the way the world is going so i you know huge thanks for writing in that email and uh, and bringing that to my attention we'll have links to all of those products in the show notes you can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com as we wind down the hour i do want to make another plea and a thank you to everybody that has written in um volunteering to host self so what was what is going to happen at least as of now and these pl plans are subject to change because as you might imagine trying to throw a conference together in 45 days uh presents significant logistical challenges but as it stands right now the conference is going to be held uh, remotely, we will allow people to attend uh, virtually. We're going to have the speakers attend virtually as well. The conference is going to be June 12th through June 14th. We invite you to attend. You'll be able to stream that conference at asknoahshow.com. You'll also be able to find that stream on our Linux Delta site. If you haven't been there, if you haven't checked it out, changes are making are being made all the time. Improvements are being made to the site, and so we invite you to join there, as well as, of course, on the Southeast Linux Fest website, which will be the primary place that will drive people. Now, there's going to be an interactive chat room that will allow you to participate in self, ask questions to speaker, and 
asked to be placed in the video conference with the speaker. So we're going to stream the video of all of the spe- all of the remote speakers that will be presenting, and you will have the opportunity then to be placed in that room, ask your question directly, or carry on a conversation. And if this works well in a limited fashion, we hope to roll this out in a larger role later on down the road. In future years, it would be nice to have all four of the presentation halls being streamed over the internet and the ability from anybody anywhere in the world with just an internet connection, a laptop, a webcam, and a microphone to be able to participate. If you'd like to do that, we highly recommend that you purchase a or pick up an inexpensive pair of headphones and if possible, an outboard microphone as that's going to increase the quality and limit the amount of audio feedback that's going to occur. More details will be coming and we'll continue to share them here on Ask Noah as well as uh, all of uh, all of the up related sites. Hey, the music means we're out of time for this hour, but don't worry. The show continues 24-7, 365 at AskNoahShow.com. That's the website. It's the it's the Ask Noah Show dashboard. It allows you access to all of the references and material I use to prepare the show, as well as all the things that we didn't have time to get to. If you'd like more information, we invite you to head over to Linux Delta. That is our community site. It has contains our wiki, a lot of articles and references. We're out of time. We'll see you next week, Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central.